Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Andy Kindler. Or should I say, Andy Kindler? No, that's not even right. It's, it's hard to do Andy justice, really. Each July, Andy becomes the ultimate comics comic at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal, where he delivers the state of the industry. Essentially, Andy telling comedy what comedy is all about. Andy had his big break uh, in 1992 when he was part of the 15th Young Comedian Special on HBO. That year it was hosted by Dana Carvey and featured Ray Romano, Janine Garofalo, Judd Apatow, Bill Bellamy, and Nick DiPaolo, along with a young Andy Kindler. Around that same time, Andy wrote The Hacks Handbook, an article about how not to do hack comedy that appeared in National Lampoon magazine. That article, in effect, inspired Montreal's Just for Laughs to ask Andy to deliver the state of the industry. Over the years, Andy appeared regularly as the character Andy on Everybody Loves Raymond, was a regular guest and correspondent on The Late Show with David Letterman, and you can still hear him on Bob's Burgers and see him as a supporting character on IFC's Marin. I spoke to Andy Kindler a day after he delivered his State of the Industry 2015 in Montreal. So let's get to it. All right, so Andy Kindler, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm proud to be here, pleased, and did I say proud? I'm also proud. So Andy Kindler, last things first. When was the last day you had that you didn't think about a State of the Industry address? That was... Excuse me. I burped everybody. That's not my style. Well, the last day that I didn't think about it would be today. No. <laughs> Writing it, you mean? Right. It, it feels like I've seen you. I've seen you on the road headlining at various points during the year, and it seems like you're always working on material. That could be you. Right. So when is um, the last time you weren't thinking about the state of the industry? Or maybe the day, or, uh, you know, the week after the last one. Uh, but then I still was because I talked about Anthony Camilla, so people were bothering me. and So maybe I don't ever... But the relief of not having to write it started as soon as I uh, stopped at four, or whenever it was. <laughs> it, 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 you know, knowing the backstory of, of how you came to be doing this, being the keynote of keynote speakers here at the Montreal Just for Last Festival, that's not something you probably ever thought would happen to you. I, I could never have predicted that I would do the Hacks Handbook, which was in uh, National Lampoon, and that was something great. I never could have predicted it. We just wouldn't have. Th I wouldn't have been able to even know what it would be. You know, it's an odd thing to do the speech. Right, because it's one thing to want to be a comedian, and then another to be. Oh, I'm going to be the comedian that everybody in the industry looks toward to say the things that right we're or ha or hates. For that reason, um, no, and I didn't. Uh, and it's always it's it's a strange format, the uh, format of the podium, and so it's part stand up, part podium. That was that was hard to. It's always 
hard to navigate, and on good years it feels natural. So yesterday it felt great, you know. But the year before, when I was doing all the Kamiya things, and I was doing uh, quote, uh, quoting his uh, racist tw- tweets, then it was just felt weird because I was also yesterday was one of those things where I was dealing with topics that they weren't softball topics. You know, putting down Seinfeld's not softball. But I didn't have the same trepidation about it, you know, even though I had anger about it. Not the same. It just came together uh, really nicely. What's, uh, what, uh, who's the last person you would ever consider talking about in the speech? Well, like, um, the last person I would ever consider talking about would be someone who's really funny. And there's a lot of people like that and are not, and there's nothing to joke about them. In other words, like some people say you're going to go after Amy Schumer. No, I really love her work, so... I think she's hilarious. So yeah. I'm not going to go after people just because they're big, bigger targets, you know? Right. Because that's, that's not, it's not, it's never been about, oh, Leno's uh, the Tonight Show guy, I'll make fun of him. No, it's about Leno should never have been the Tonight Show guy. I'll make fun of him. Okay. So <laughs> so in that way, it's not a roast or an equal opportunity thing. You mentioned you mentioned in this year's speech that uh, that roasting is, is, is not something you would you would see yourself doing. I don't do it as well. I mean, I can do it at a party and I can do it on and off, but I don't have the chops or something. Maybe if I did it more. I, I if, if we're all in a group, I will go nuts on everyone's clothing and be funny, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't have the same thing that a lot of the great roasters have. And I'm not sure how you term that, but what the term for that is. Hmm. Even though some people would consider the state of the industry a roast. It is a it is a roast in many ways. It is the same thing. I guess I'm more reacting to being on a dais or that's a harder it's a different skill, right? You know? When you're looking at specific people in the eyes and and the, and I've and I've uh, you know, I have had great times doing it. You know, and people have said to me, "Oh, you do it well." But I always feel like it's hard to do. It's hard to um I don't know what I'm really saying, but like like uh when I did that thing, the Chevy Chase one, it was it went really badly. But I don't know if that was because of I didn't prepare. I think it was because I went on with with Lisa Lampanelli after Lisa Lampanelli, like, and it was the last person on the roast. Well, even Lisa Lampanelli told me for for this podcast that, that she didn't enjoy the Chevy Chase roast either. I don't know that anyone in, enjoyed that. Is that what she said? Really? Because yeah. I couldn't follow her. She was doing Christopher Reeve jokes. It was he was still alive, but. I can't do a, can't follow a Christopher Reeves giving me orals. I don't know what the bit was. <laughs> Google it, people. Google I thought it. she uh, always kills. She seemed to kill that night. Now, it was a terrible atmosphere there. <laughs> Chevy Chase is, is obviously might be a nice person to his family, but God damn it, he's got some issues. He just made the, he just put a poll terrible pall over the mm-hmm. whole evening's festivities <laughs> like please don't yes please don't do this what uh what was your what was your childhood like my childhood was like uh i i grew up like middle class everything was pretty you know there was nothing i didn't starve and uh but it had its own struggles and like any any kid does and my family was very funny and my dad's always been uh the funniest guy mm-hmm. ever and uh, I grew up like amongst fu- funny people. Um, siblings. Siblings. And I, I mean, my 
Everyone in my family, I think, is pretty funny, but my dad was the most overtly funny. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we all had our problems, but I would um, I feel like lucky that I had the my parents just uh, my dad died, but my parents are still together all the way to to the end of my dad, and so the end of my dad. That sounds weird, but uh, it wasn't until I got into like high school or junior high school that I started to perform and do things. Uh, well, I did. I guess I don't know what I'm saying. I probably was always doing things, but uh, I started to get more formats for doing it. But I could feel the same loneliness that everybody. I, I assume everyone goes, or many people go through the same things. Did like, you have Did you have careers you thought about before? I wanted to be a musician. Or? That's all I wanted to be. Was a, I wanted to be? I really grew up influenced by the Beatles, and I just thought being a rock star would be. <laughs> you know, that's like Bob Dylan. I loved so. That was always my dream was to do that but then i have to admit that early on you know i did i did a lot of theater things in like summer camp even and so i think i always was feeling there would be different types of things i might want to do did you play guitar or piano or drums or i played violin when i was a little kid and i got sick of that and i played guitar starting at age 16 and i still play that okay which i enjoy but you'd never you'd never consider yourself a musical comedian though well that's because when i when I went transitioned from com stand up from music to comedy, I think I'm starting. I think the festival's starting <laughs> to get to me. <laughs> uh, I it was hacky to bring your guitar. Like if I brought my guitar on the road, I have to explain to the other comics, "Don't worry, I'm not using it in the act." <laughs> and it was considered very hacky to uh, because it was all like take one word out of a song and substitute it. But now, over the last few years, I've I have started to write some funny songs. You know, hopefully funny songs because I love Fly of the Concords. And when I look back, I loved like Alan Sherman when I was a kid. But I also loved Zappa. Zappa's stuff is very funny. I think. So. Who Who is the first comedian? Randy Newman. Randy Newman was a big influence. Okay. Incredibly funny in his songs. I I have a thing against Randy Newman because of his song "Short Short People." Yeah, but that's uh that's. Wait, but like, that's because I was incredibly I'm, short growing up, and that's what's so great. I'm short too. I was always the size places first person in line, but uh, that's one of the most classic songs ever. Short people are just the same as you and I. I'm not gonna sing it because first of all, if I wasn't gonna sing it, I hope I wouldn't sing it like that. Uh, it's coming through very loud. And but though. but Fly of the Concords, I really loved their stuff uh, more than Tenacious D. I never really got Tenacious D. I never liked that kind of music that they were making fun of. Uh, well, their music is more personality-driven than yeah, and I think the and, uh, and I think Jack Black's hilarious. So, but Concords was the first time I thought, oh, I can see how this all works. Now, what about when you were a kid or a teenager? Who was the first comedian who you saw or heard and said, oh, this is a thing? I think you know, like uh, pretty boilerplate. Like if I watched, uh, I don't know what that means. If I watched Sullivan. All the people, like I think even Jackie Mason I saw, maybe. But my first memory was more like sitcom act, like Dick Van Dyke or uh, Andy Griffith or Jackie Gleason. I loved Jackie Gleason when I was a kid. And those weren't more so much stand-ups. The, first, uh, the stand-up I really, as I got towards adulthood, was prior. I really loved him, you know. Well, you you mentioned doing a lot of theatrical productions. Is that perhaps why? Because you were more looking at sitcom stars and I don't know. I th I really think there was no operating. I loved sitcoms from the time I was a little kid. I loved Leave It to Beaver. I loved everything because I just loved the concept. That I bought. 
I mean, I if you pressed me on it, I, w- I probably would say, no, there's no Mayberry. But I didn't think about that when I was watching it. I, that's the town. This is where they are. And my, I would lose myself in that world, which is why it's, it's sad there aren't as many good sitcoms now. It's very hard to make them good for some reason. But that's all. That's what I grew up on with those. Uh, and then later on, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. Like even Bob Newhart, I knew more from Newhart, Bob Newhart show than I did from his stand-up. Yeah. It, it took me a while before I got into Newhart's. The stand-up, really? Yeah. Yeah, because the I still think the show. I think he's hilarious, but that show is one of the greatest shows. That uh, the first one where he's a psychiatrist or psychologist. The second one in in Vermont wasn't half bad either. Uh, I never got into it as much, but was it Larry Daryl and Daryl? It was. Did they turned you up. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like I lo- I watched it and actively didn't like it. It just the setup of that psychologist's office and the different and they had such amazing people like uh, Jack Riley who played Elliot Carlin okay it's just it, well, I don't know what you call it alchemy or magic but when the yes. sitcoms come together they're, they're just there's nothing better than them you know uh, Mary Tyler Moore was a perfect example of that and it's hard to and that was a show that was like so close to not going even you know they there's a book about it where they talk about just like when he says, uh, "You got spunk, Mary." I hate spunk. That's a, that's a, it's a, everyone. It's almost a cliche to point that out, but that was one of the and all in the family. I love too. Loved all the family. And I know Nor- well. Norman Lear has said time and time again that that he doesn't think he could do any of his sitcoms in today's TV climate. Well, is that he saying PC? Thing is, he saying the PC police. He was. He's been saying that since at least 2002 was the first time I heard him talking. Yeah, about I don't know. I don't buy that. I really. I mean, I love Norman Lear though. I love him. In fact, I want. I have his book. I haven't read it yet, but I love. I really do love him. Um, it is true. I just don't. I think you. If you look at the and I can't stand him now, but Ricky Gervais, the original Office. That's just like Archie Bunker. So I don't think it's that's an untrue statement. He's saying. That you couldn't make it in today's climate. All in the family you could. I mean, I guess it's it's sort of a corollary to Seinfeld complaining about colleges. They're just, they're so removed from that. Yes, that's true. They can't, they can't imagine themselves in that world. But, but I think there's truth to what Norman Lear is saying that if you presented it word for word Mm -hmm. or whatever, it wouldn't fly. But it's also a different time period. Right. So it's very hard to figure out. I know. I think there's validity to what he's saying, specifically with a show like All in the Family. Maybe there was definitely a lot, a lot more open dialogue in the '70s on television. That's true, and that could have been a brief thing that was that had to do with that time period of all the stuff that was going on. Yeah. I think we've we've reached agreement, <laughs> but I'm not sure about what. Now, was uh, at what point did you f- first find yourself on stage as a comedian? Um, 1984. Sorry to say it was that long ago, but it's true. 1984. Oh, it's history. It's important that we get the details right. Uh, well, I started in a comedy duo in 1994, and I did that for... 84. Well, yeah, I keep changing the dates. <laughs> 84 through 86, and I went on my own in 87. Okay. And that's when, uh, uh, and the rest is history. Yeah. So with the, how did you decide to start as a duo? Because I was at a company picnic. I had a whole series of day jobs. I was a stereo store salesman, and uh, 
the best job I ever had for stand up was when I became a waiter because I was because I love being a waiter, and so it wasn't like work, and I could just do lunch shifts and they would allow me to take stand up things and. Um, uh, what was that? What was that question? So you're so you're working as a waiter. Oh oh yeah yeah. I, so how did you decide that? You're gonna go not go up on stage by yourself. You're gonna go up on right. Stage so as a I was. This was before I was a waiter. Okay. So this is when I was working in a stereo store, and I was at a company picnic. I was making fun of all the people there, just mocking them, because I, you know, I always kind of took my sense of humor for granted, and uh, it was weird because it's just something I did. And then my friend Bill said, "Why don't you? Have you thought about trying it?" And I actually had in a way because I'd been to the comedy store when I first came out, and I loved it, and so that's why. He encouraged me to have him try it with him. So you were already in Los Angeles at that point. Yeah, that was the thing. Like, I, I it, for me to have started in a smaller town, I would have had to have moved to a smaller town. I came out here after college to pursue a music career, and then uh, when I decided to do stand up, I was already here. So it would it would have been odd to leave. What made you decide? Uh, what was the the last straw in your music? Well, there's no. I, well, I don't want to say last straw because maybe there's more straws at some point. Uh, oh, it that's just true. was. You are picking up the guitar again. You're. Yeah. You're, so who knows? Songs. It could come back. It wasn't like a last straw, but I really got burnt out on it. I was a. I really loved playing guitar, and at one point I wanted to be a studio musician, but I realized I don't. I'm not going to want to put the work in that I would have had to put in to maybe conceivably be good enough to be a studio musician. And then it just became that I got very burnt down in writing songs. Mm-hmm. I just needed something something else, and I wasn't going anywhere because I made the mistake of doing cover bands. Mm. So not a mistake, but it slowed me down. Although I have a lot of music that I wrote from that time period and recorded in studios. So, And so the, the transition into stand-up was natural, but the thing that was so great about stand-up was, unlike music, which is so hard to dis- to get your name in front of the executives... With stand-up, it's such a great system. Anybody could start tomorrow in the system and move up because even though there's clicks and stuff like that, it's really – and there's no blocks that there are in other art forms like, you know, like fine art and who you know, puts shows on and stuff like that. So that's why – and then it just happened to be I got in a time that was very fortuitous. There's a lot of road work, and I made a living from 87 to 92 just being on the road like 40 weeks a year. But the first couple of years was as a duo. Yes. And what what kind of was it? A very uh, Smothers Brothers kind of. It was. Uh, what duo? we did what kind was. Of duo were you? I would say it was more towards the Smothers Brothers than it would be towards other things. Um, and we did a lot. I mean, I did a, a thing like where I was Jaime Morristine, who was the Israeli version of Jim Morrison, but I denied the connection. So my partner was mostly a straight man. He was really good straight man. Okay. So he would say, "Oh, hi, May. I uh, and then I hear that you're and I would so I would deny it and then I would start singing these songs that were like, Shalom Aleichem. Would you give me a break and all this stuff? <laughs> was, was that like, your first hit? Well, that was the, yeah, and it was very <laughs> funny. So those things were funny, and the other things were like, how funny could they be? You're just mm. starting anyway, and. But you were getting road work as a duo. No. Oh. No, no. We got road. We got one job as a duo at Idaho State University. When I started to go out on my own, like in '86, I went out on my own. Then by '87, I started to uh, book. We were completely broken up, and he was a therapist, so he went back to being a therapist. And then I started to uh, 
Fly. I mean, that's Fly. Started road work, and I did that for, like I said, five years. How did it feel the first time you performed as a solo act? Very frightening. Terrible. Because I didn't do well. I literally cried. Uh, On stage or after? After, thank God. Where was this? A, a place called Seymour Hams, <laughs> which was a pun, obviously. Seymour Hams. But it was spelled like Seymour. With a double MS. Mm. And uh, it was a little Italian restaurant place in Torrance where also local community theater people gathered. It was a very kind of a interesting place. And I used to, I actually ended up booking it at one point. Oh, wow. I, I, I paid 25 to open, 35 to middle, and 50 to headline. <laughs> Which something who, who 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 were your regulars who played that? Uh, I had uh, uh, Paul Feig. Uh, the great Paul Feig played there. Uh, the members of uh, Steve Higgins, oh, uh, uh, Dave Allen, and uh, who's the Big other Bones and Steve Higgins. Uh, Dave Higgins. That their group went right. there. In fact, when they came down there, they were called "Don't Quit Your Day Job" back in the day. Then they were the Higgins Boys and Gruber, and then the lights, the electricity went out in the club we were playing. So. And then I think a lot of the a lot of people played there. I can't think of one name now. So you were booking that club. You were going on the road, and you were. Well, they booked that waiting? club before I went on the road. And you were still working as a waiter part time. Uh, until until I went on the road, I think I was still waiting part time as a waiter. When did you feel comfortable just doing comedy full time? At what point? Uh, in terms of financially. Yeah. Where you're like, no, I don't need to do anything else. I can just focus. It's on always was always a struggle, always. And I would before I got into comedy, I'd run up my credit cards just from living in life. So I was always and remain always in debt. But I felt like I knew that I could make a living at this, depending on the year. And that was a, a, like '87, which was the height of the. the yeah, it was starting boom, to be so. the right exactly. So it was a good time to be a, For a what, young upstart. Yeah, I mean, eventually, all of it became bad because the clubs... Excuse me, I'm so sorry. This is not me. It's not you, I mean. It's me. Because the clubs uh, became hacky in the 90s and all that stuff. But at first, it was the best. I was very blessed to be able to have that much work at that young a time. Uh, who did you... Did you have somebody that you featured for a lot? No, it was, it was more like all... you met... I met all my friends. I met Todd Glass on the road. I met all my friends on the road. We never, obviously, I didn't, wasn't headlining when I started. So, and I even to this day don't necessarily, if I am, I don't necessarily bring someone with me, you know. You're not someone so, who has a regular no. touring. No. It sounds like fun, but I like working with different comics. It feels, it feels like, to, at least today, for young comics, that that's a way that for them to get their foot in the door is they yeah. find a headliner who likes them and then... They can get some consistent road work. Well, I can see how the comic who's uh, doing it, you know, who's the headliner or the name or whatever, I, th I can see how they would like it a lot because you never know what you're going to get in the road. And if it's the wrong act, they really can mess things up. <laughs> who, who, is, who, is the, who is the act who messes things up the most for you when you're on the road? Um, well, is there, is there, there was, a, I mean, the, the perfect example was I followed a, a guy... In, um, I think it was uh, Florida, and he kept yelling. He had a thing like, 
If you've uh, drank, you know, if you have eight bottles of vodka, you've had too much to drink. So he got the crowd chanting, and he had the crowd chanting, yeah, shit, yeah. And, and then I worked with a guy who my whole week did crowd work the whole week, mm-hmm. and that's impossible to follow. What, the, what, it, about, what about comics who sell merch? I used to I, I used to make fun of everything, but I well I think it's good. I mean, it does get weird if you're selling pen and pencil sets or coasters, <laughs> but when you're selling DVDs and CDs, right. I still never I never feel comfortable doing it. But uh, and I obviously if you overhype it, it's no good. When you were younger, did you ever have custom merch that you were built into the act, like a T-shirt no, with your catchphrase never. on it? Never, I haven't done that either. <laughs> I avoided all of that. But I will if you want me to. I have a well. I make fun now that I have Andy Killer neck pillows. Oh, for if you want to fall asleep during the show. <laughs> that's 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 very uh, comforting. It is. <laughs> it goes along with the theme. I also have those uh, night. What do they call when you put a mask on? Oh, you know what you can't see. A mask? No, I don't think it's a mask. It's a. Uh, <laughs> no, I know what you're talking about. Yes, uh, sleepy. People put eye shades. Eye People put that on during my show too. Uh, well, what would you consider now, looking back? What would you consider your your big break? Um, I would probably say the Young Comedian Special in 1992, and also writing the Hacks Handbook in a way. And that was the year before, right? Right. So, uh, so the Hacks Handbook came first. I ha- think. I think so. I maybe not. Because HBO, I always, I'm very confused about when I taped it. Oh, when it taped and then when it aired. And when it aired. I really don't, I, I haven't been able, I bet someone could find it out. <laughs> it was the one hosted by Jerry Seinfeld. No, it wasn't hosted. <laughs> no. I had Jerry Seinfeld on my brain. Dana Carvey hosted it. <laughs> oh, I'm losing it. <laughs> we're, we're here in Montreal. At it the, may be at a good, this is a good a view of the people, of how the business uh, have a comic, not because of the interview, but just because of s- so many emotions I went through. I'm starting to fall asleep. Yes, we're 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 talking in Montreal at the ver- very end of the Just for Laughs festival. A yeah. mere a mere 24 hours after Andy has given his state of the industry address. And uh, I have to. I mean, I hate to keep saying this, but I am so happy. I really am. I've never been. It's been a very hard year. I've told the, told too many people about my dad dying, and when my dad died in January, the rest of the year just became very, like I know that, I, and I love my dad, and mm-hmm. I didn't leave anything on the table, as they say, but just came at me in weird ways. I'd get very angry, and I would more than usual, <laughs> and uh, couldn't concentrate. So this was so much pain. I was going in like I literally. The night before the speech, I was like, I don't have this speech. I mm. don't have it. Because I always start to negate the work I've done during the year and get worried that, uh, like, I have a Christian work ethic guy in my head yelling at me. Did and, you and did, did you listen to uh, Dana Gould's speech? Yeah, I loved it. I loved his keynote. I thought it was very inspiring. Uh, the whole idea of him killing on the Saturday Night Live audition and then not getting it and how that became... So instructive to him, and I thought the message was great that you're doing it now, and I thought he did a great job. I thought the message was universal, so even if you're not a comedian, you can still yeah. I think that's take true. It to heart. That really should be true about any good philosophy, because <laughs> you should be able to apply the same 
principles in anything you do. Right. You, to not compare yourself to everyone else. Where Where am I at? Yeah, and just in general, that the answer, is, even though you think the answer is becoming rich and famous, that's not the answer. Yeah. Uh, you Mentioning your dad, what did your dad and your parents think of your comedy career? Well, my dad was... My parents were never the kind of people who would say, don't do this, don't do that. But I think my dad wasn't... He didn't love my music as much as well, many people didn't. <laughs> so I think he was thrilled when I got into comedy, you know. Uh, and I think they're very, they were very proud of me. They and in fact, they came down to the first Letterman I did, but I didn't get to. I got bumped, and so I went. And my mom was so upset. She goes, "Why don't they call it what it really is? They're breaking the promise." You know, it's like <laughs> she, could, she couldn't understand the idea of bumping someone. Did she? Did she threaten to or actually talk to anyone on no, staff? No, she didn't. She didn't. <laughs> So you hear that, Mom? Yeah. <laughs> That's a message of my mom, too. But uh, so they never, so that was, so th- yeah, they are pr- They were proud of me, I think. <laughs> uh, what was your last experience uh, with Letterman or the set? Of well, Letterman? I had the, I did a set, my, I had like some kind of breakthrough uh, with doing short sets on TV and that was May of 2014. I had a set where just everything came. To, it was everything I always wanted it to be. It just happened to come together. And I, and so my memory of the last one was also, I was very happy with that one too. But on the one the second to the last one, I, I really was able to say to him, I want to thank you. It was a dream coming on your show. And this is all that mattered to me as a comedian. And, you know, it's like, I think it's hard for anybody to take compliments so I could see he gets he gets a little embarrassed, whatever. But he real it was so good for me to be able to communicate. How how much did you try to be a part of those last shows and parties? Did you did well, you want to connect with everybody or did well, you? Well, I was connecting with the writers and stuff because I know my friend Jeremy Weiner and I was talking to him. Mm-hmm. And there was even a possibility that they I had gone to the toy fair for him, and I had an accident there and I really hurt my back, but it's healed. So there was a possibility that when they were showing the bits they'd done in the past, that mm-hmm. that could have been one of the ones they did, and that would have been a thrill. But I was, but th- I didn't, I didn't know that until afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then to see my, that I was in the montage was right. great. That was such a that's mental. An, that's an Emmy nominated montage. Is it really for for editing? Oh, that should be yeah. So, is that the only Emmy nomination they got? Or they also no, they got, got for a variety show. That's great. Yeah. Uh... Now I know you know we were just talking about Dana Gould and not comparing yourself, but when you think about that young comedian special now and the the stacked lineup, Dana Carvey. Carvey. <laughs> Did you say Gould? No, Dana Gould's speech. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, and, right, right. And uh, and not comparing your your status or your place on the the rungs of show business with others. Right. So if you think about that young comedian special you were on with with Apatow and yeah, Jewish, yeah. I'm a failure. I'm a complete. That's not. That's not what you think. That was no. I don't. But I mean, I occasionally would say I'd like to have them. You know, I'd like to be more comfortable (laughs) financially. No, I really don't. I don't think I'm lying to myself to say that I'm over any of not over that. I those things have become not as I. I accept where I am as a comedian, and I'm very proud of where I am, 
and anything else is gravy. And I really do sincerely mean that. So I wouldn't have wanted any of their careers because it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have wanted to, because I loved Everybody Loves Raymond. So you could say, yeah, I would want to have my own sitcom. But I wasn't like, I wish I had that sitcom. Um, but I think the only time that I ever say I wish anything is when I'm broke. I wish I wasn't broke sometimes. When's the last time you felt broke? It's it's a relative thing. My wife and I just bought a condo, okay. so that's a great thing. But then, like, sometimes you'll get cash poor. Um, so maybe a couple months ago I was broke. <laughs> but not like I'm going to be on the street broke. But but definitely hoping for season four of Marin. Yes, everything. But that's the other thing. It's just a slow... There were so many opportunities for me where if I had been like a whatever series regular on Raymond, I, I would have so much more money, you know. Uh, but there is a cumulative effect of the Bob's Burger residuals, the Marin residuals. I still get residuals for everybody loves Raymond. So don't worry about me, people. <laughs> I'm fine. Although after after this year's speech, your your quote, your going rate is going up. It's up, baby. Get me now before it gets too embarrassing for us. So, so what's the last great piece of advice you got from uh, from another comedian? Or, well, I always go back to the same advice. So it's almost cliche at this point. About Al Lubell was my greatest uh, like light bulb went off when he told me that you know the act I was doing it was getting last, but is that the act I wanted to do? And that kind of the light bulb went off. I mean, I take advice. Just like um, commiserating, say, with like talk less, and I've been commiserating a lot about the whole uh, PC thing. Mm-hmm. And so to find people that you really resonate with on in terms of how they look at things, that's been very, very uh, uh, good with all comics that I'm friends with. Because you work it out and you start to think. So I wouldn't say any specific advice. But definitely believe in what you're saying. Yeah. Don't just say things because it's a joke, because it gets an easy laugh. Well, that can be, you know, I mean, I don't want every joke to be meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) I would say discount most of what I'm saying. (laughs) Is is that what you say? In general. If a young young comedian comes up to you and says, says, Andy, Andy Kindler, please, I want to know the secrets (laughs) to comedy. Yeah, I tell them. I try. Well, I'm not in the school of dissuading young comedians. I think you, I think that's a you shouldn't go out of your way and tell them don't do it. <laughs> Even if we're in another c- big comedy boom now, well, like, yeah, I, like, no, I, no, I, please come more. I more, might say more people a, in if comedy. It gets we out need of control. More, yeah, we it, need more comedians. It could get out of control. <laughs> At what point do you think you would know that we're out of control, and at what point do you think we would know that it's out of control? I think. I don't know because right now we're in the middle of a renaissance, but it's a renaissance that's not based on the boom-type qualities that there were before where you could see it crushing down. I would like to hope that comedy, stand-up comedy, will continue to be whatever you want to call it, reinvented. Not reinvented, but that, you know, just the fact that now people... It took a long time to get over it being a laughingstock art form because of the 90s. And now I think it's back to what... Except that there's an amazing amount of great comedy right now, and that definitely goes in cycles. Well, I definitely feel as though, Andy, Andy Kindler, you are one of those people who helps keep 
all the rest of us in comedy honest. That makes me very happy. And it hear. makes me very happy that you that you did this. So thanks for thank, being on the show. Thank you. It was fun. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.